House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg is here. Happy to be here. I'm, 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 I'm a fan. This is great. I'm looking forward to it. Fan of me? Oh, yeah, you too. Yes, of course. <laughs> yes. Fan of Michael. Michael Butterfield. Hi, Al. Hi, Joe. Hi, hi. Well, we're all Glad here. to be with you. Yeah. Well, um, we'll get right into it today because we've got a uh, quite the writer. So, um, yes. Mr. David Baldacci, thank you for being here. Oh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, David, now the first thing I have to bring up, of course, everyone um, has their different things, but you, you are going to be the lifetime guest of honor at the uh, BoucherCon this year. How do you, how was that for you? I, it was wonderful. I mean, it shows that um, I've been around a long time, <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with that. It's always, it's always nice to be, you know, sort of noted by your peers and, um, you know, I, a lot of people out there that I've read and enjoyed for years and uh, I'm looking for the event. It's going to be a lot of fun. Now, you started, it says that you, you started writing uh, when you were quite young and you, you uh, thank your mother for that. Um, getting you sparked into writing and stuff. Did you did you see yourself becoming this big or this successful successful of, of a writer as you have? No, I didn't. I mean, I I loved reading short stories when I was a kid. I Raymond Carver and Dora Wealthy and Flannery O'Connor and Truman Capote and uh, I liked writing short stories and I wrote those for over 10 years and I thought, you know, I'd have a, a job that would, you know, make a living for me and I could write on the side, maybe sell a story here or there. Um, that my ambitions are relatively modest in that regard. Um, so, yeah, this has certainly been beyond all my expectations. I have a quick question about your mother. When I read something about uh, when she gave you a notebook and then later explained why she gave it to you, would you share that story? Yeah, well, I was, you know, I was one of those kids who never shut up, just always talking all the time, these tall tales and yarns. And uh, one day my mom really, she gave me a journal, um, and she said, honey, you know, some of the stuff you've been talking about, you know, all these years, why don't you write, writing it down? You know, you love to read, you love books, so why don't you write something of your own that other people might be able to read? And as soon as my pen hit the paper, it was like this epiphany, and I never looked back, and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And years later, after I had been published, I went back to her true story, and I, I said, Mom, thank, thank you so much. What a gift you gave me that day. And True to form, my mom said, honey, I'm so glad it's worked out for you, but quite frankly, I just wanted to shut you the hell up. <laughs> I mean, in a, in, a, in a little southern turn of phrase, she said, you had gotten on my last nerve, boy. So it worked out well. But the other thing they did, in addition to giving me a journal, um, they took my brother, my, my sister, and I to the library every week, and we checked out as many books as we possibly could. And Oh, yeah. Even though I never left Virginia when I was a little kid, never left Richmond when I was a little kid, uh, I thought the world through books, and that really sparked me beyond anything else. When when you're when you're sitting down to write one of these books, how how does the process start for you? Are you sitting down and uh, um, starting with a setting, with characters, with uh, a theme, or uh, where does it begin for you? I want to write some pages that interest and treat me, uh, such that I want to keep going. And I'll give you an example. I, I'm writing the sequel to a book I wrote last year called The Six Twenty Man. And I wrote 25 pages set in a certain place with a certain angle. And after 25 pages, <clears throat> I ran out of gas because I didn't see how I was going to move forward. I wasn't interested in the pages, how I could a reader be. So I set those aside. And then I wrote 
from another angle, another geographic location and setting for the, uh, Travis Devine, the 620 man. And I wrote 100 pages this time, and I thought, you know, still, it's just not doing it for me. I don't want to move forward with it. I don't see plausible scenarios that I can move forward, and I'm just not interested in what I've written. Um, and so I sat back, and I looked at both sets of pages, and I took some from each and cobbled together a story that really hit it bullseye. This is exactly what I wanted to be. It took some of the geographical location of one and the angle of the story from the other um, and brought it all together, and then I was off and running, and I've written, you know, two-thirds of the book probably in the last month because I now I feel very comfortable that, you know, the focus is exactly where I want it to be. That's an interesting point. How, how much, how, how important is it as a writer for you to abandon something that you've been working on when it doesn't feel right? Because a lot of writers will just try to stick with it because they've already written so much. I know, but I think you have to realize that your, your, your creative mind is telling you it's, this is a no-go. You might be close. It's a no-go. Don't waste your time. You're going to write 400 pages of crap and nobody's really going to want to read it. Um, so better to cut your cut your losses early on, retool, refigure. If there's something you can pull from that that intrigued you, there might have been one element out of ten that you came up in those pages that intrigued you. Pull that one out and see if it'll work in a new setting or you know a new environment. Um, and because it's so important, I always wanted to develop in those first hundred pages everything I need to write the next three hundred pages. Uh, and it's all going to be in there. I mean, I can add some characters, you know, in those 300 pages, certainly, or some new plot twists. But the substance of it, the meat of the story, it all has to really be there. Uh, and I can work off from that. So those first 100 pages for me are critical. Well, what's the meat of the story for you? For me, it's, you know, <clears throat> I, have, I have a character or characters. I put them into a setting and something is going to happen. And then they have to resolve that. Um, and there has to be something at stake, you know. And but they have to resolve it in a way that you know will give satisfaction to them, to me, to the reader. Um, and you know, stories are stories, so they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I don't say you have to write them in a linear fashion, um, but something has to happen to someone such that people who are reading it about it will care. Um, and if you keep it simple to that point, then you can make everything else complicated. But the underlying thread, keep it relatively simple. It's almost like you know the best meals I've had in my life had fewer than four ingredients. Um, it's simple, but it's just bountiful, and it hits every taste bud you have. So sometimes people go in and say, how complicated can I make this story? And then when I'm writing it, I'll make it even more complicated. And then you get to the end, and you have no idea what happened. Yes. So <laughs> That's why I was asked the question, is, is it plot for you, or is it character? It's got to be, for me, it's got to be both. And sometimes one outweighs the other in a particular book. It could be character versus plot or plot over over top of character. But you have to have both, and you have to pay attention to both and give both their due because the plot is great. People love it. Turn the pages, trying to guess it, twists and turns. Wow, I didn't see that coming. But I can't attack, I can't connect to them on a visceral level um, with plot. I can connect them on a visceral level with character because that's what's going to be happening to people in the book. And the people who are reading it have to be worried for the people in the book, rooting for them, rooting against them. I can't do that solely with plot. I've got to do that with character. And so I have to spend time developing characters to make you know them, interested in them, like them, don't like them. But you have to have some visceral reaction. You have to have some emotional connection to them. Do, do you find yourself putting in a, uh, a subtext of some sort? Do you sort of have a meaning to each book that you put out, uh, even if it comes about organically? I do, because I think what pulls me into the story are the elements in the story that I find interesting and intriguing. I, 
I always try to do two things with every book. I try to entertain and I also try to inform. So I write about things that I find fascinating and worthy of other people's knowledge and attention. So if I'm writing about, in The Sixth Twenty Man, I wrote about, you know, $40 trillion of dark money fly, flying around the world. There's this international journalist organization that had uncovered and, you know, revealed a lot of people, for everybody from dictators to, you know, rich people to stars to politicians who had had this money hidden all over the place. And I thought that was intriguing and important for people to know and maybe read more about it just besides, you know, the book that I wrote about it. And that also fuels my fire. You have to keep in mind that when you write a book, you have to go into it such that your creative tank is going to be full for the whole ride. If you run out of gas halfway through, nobody's going to be happy about that, particularly the writer. So you have to really be invested in the material. Don't think just halfway. I kind of sort of interested in this because kind of sort of is not going to cut it on page 187 because uh, you're not going to get to page 188. Um, so you have to be invested in the material. So I take some time about, you know, what am I, what's intriguing you right now? What, what's happening in the world that is really interesting and compelling that I can go and learn a lot about and then take what I've learned, add fictional components to it, and write a story that people would be interested in reading. Well, and you actually go an extra mile or two on your research for all these things that you are learning about. It seems like that's part of your process is your own fascination with these subjects. It is. I mean, I, I long ago I determined to live my life as a life, lifelong journey of learning. Um, so every day I try to learn something I didn't know the day before. Because um, the brain, you know, it's like feeding your body in a nutritious way. Your brain needs fuel. Um, and for me, it's different information and challenges and things I didn't know. Not, you know, I crave knowledge. My books are full of this stuff. So when I go out and research, I do it myself. I don't have a platoon of researchers going out to find out about this stuff because... As a trial lawyer, I always like to interview my witnesses face-to-face. -face. You know, how some people talk, their body language tells you a lot that you're not going to get third-hand. I don't want someone's interpretation of a geographic location, and they tell me what they thought was important. I'd much rather go out there and see it for myself, and I could be inspired by things that I see. I can be inspired by people that I meet along the way, and I can be inspired when I talk to somebody, I listen to why they do what they do, and a sentence or two that they say that may seem unimportant to them becomes very critical to me as I'm becoming inspired to writing the story and tells me something I didn't know before. So the research is absolutely critical. And, I, and for me, it can't be done secondhand. I don't want someone else's interpretation. I want mine. Well, how did you do that during COVID? Because you put like six books out there in three years. I know. I know. I Well, for me, COVID, I was fueled by COVID because books became my safe space to get away from the craziness of the world. Um, you know, I was glued to the television and the computer like everybody else and wondering, you know, is this the apocalypse or what? Um, so that was my cocoon. Um, and I, and I wrote a lot because I was just trying to escape everything else. And I, you know, my travel was canceled like everyone else because I didn't have anywhere to go. Um, so I just wrote. That was my therapy. Is it your therapy all the time? Is, it, is that where David goes to get away from the noise around? Yeah, it absolutely is. My books are, you know, my writing is, where I go to get away from everything else in life. Um, it's my, you know, my fantasy sort of spectrum where I can go to the secret bandwidth and nobody else can get, get hold of it except for me. Um, and I can lose myself in that world. And, you know, I, I tell people, I, I know writing is hard and days are frustrating as hell. The sentences won't come, the characters won't pop off the page and you wonder, you know, Jesus, am I just spinning my wheel or what? But then you have to sit back and go, guess what? I make my living by making shit up. You know? <laughs> yes. 
how cool is that? I'm not, I don't make my living, you know, pounding out a piece of metal the same way, you know, 24 hours a day or, you know, doing a certain process the same way every day. I sit down and I'm an eight year old kid and I'm going to tell a story. I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, but I know it's going to be fun and off I go. And if you approach it like that, then the really the bad days are frustrating days. The days are just a slog. They sort of become a distant memory and you just, I try to keep it in perspective that I have, I feel like I have the coolest job in the world because again, I it literally, I am paid extremely well to just make stuff up all the time. And, um, I always look at it that way. And then the, the bad parts of the profession, the frustrating parts, they just don't matter anymore. You should be a politician. <laughs> no. well, speaking of which, I have a question in, in regard to what you just said. Uh, I noticed that you had said uh, in an interview that certain individuals or events in, in recent history had made it difficult for you to come up with things because you would come up with an idea that you thought was outlandish or um Unique, and then of course you would see something like it happening in real life, and you'd have to start over. Yes, yeah, I know it is. It's the only good thing that's come out of that, and I, believe me, I would have traded it if it hadn't happened. Uh, was that I'm only bound as a as a as a mystery thriller writer and any fiction writer really. I'm only bound by plausibility. You know, it doesn't have to have happened for me to write about it. It's only you know it's plausible. It could happen. I feel like. I can write about anything now, and nobody could say it's implausible, you know. And um, and if they want to challenge me on it, I can point out a hundred examples of why they're wrong. Um, and so that has been a little bit liberating. It's not been great for the world or the country, but for writers, it's been a little bit liberating. Well, when you're thinking about plausibility and common sense and reality, the, do you think about your reader as you're writing your book? Are they standing over your shoulder, or are they outside that writing cocoon for you? I I. I do think about them just because I think it's important uh, to understand the psychology of reading a book like the sorts that I write. Um, and people who read mysteries and thrillers usually are very devoted to that genre, and they read a lot of them. Um, so in that way, they have seen a lot of stuff. They've seen twists and turns and red herrings and deflections and, and all the other distractions, and every tool that a writer can have in their toolbox. So it becomes, you know, harder and harder to sort of surprise them. Um, and so when I'm writing a particular scene, it, I try to put myself in, in uh, a reader's uh, capacity and think, am I going to go down this alley with the way I've constructed the scene such that the reader is not really going to see what's actually important about it? Uh, they're going to gloss over it because I'm showing this shiny gem over here and they're looking at that, and then the really important stuff was there for a second and now it's gone. So when I build stuff up like that, um, I do think about a reader's reaction because I, I want them to, I don't want them to, to telegraph everything. I want them to feel like they've been surprised, didn't see something coming. So what I try to do is most people, even diligent readers in real life, they're not incredibly observant. That's just most people. You know, that's why eyewitness testimony is so fallible because everybody, nobody remembers what happened three seconds ago. You know, you could have this guy with a gun running past you, and the cop comes up and said, did you see the guy? Yeah, what did he look like? Um, <laughs> uh, he, was, he was a guy, and uh, I think he had red hair, but maybe not. And I don't know if he was tall or short or medium. So when I construct a scene, I'll, I'll give you an example. Long Shadows, it was my most recent memory man. The opening scenes in that novel concerning the murder, there were two bodies in the house, and they were both dead. Um, and you lay that simple scene out, a scene that readers of the genre have seen a million times in books before. 
Um, and I just let them look at that scene and come to the assumption I knew they would come to is that the two crimes were related and the same killer killed both people, and now we can move on and we can see what Amos Ducker's going to do as a detective, you know, following all the clues and stuff like that. And once they got past those pages, you know, I had them because they I had made them make an assumption that they had no business making, that the murders were connected and the same killer killed both people. Um, and that's just a very simple stratagem, um, but it was effective enough to carry the book on for 400 pages and really knock people's socks off at the end. Uh, when they realized that they had made assumptions they had no business making. But there was really no way that most of them would not make that assumption just because I just looked it out. I didn't try to complicate it. I just, here it is. Here, here's what it is. And you make your own assumptions about it, but, but the way I built it, I know the assumptions you're going to make. And then that's usually enough, and then you're off and running. Do you think about sensitivity now when you're writing? Do you think about uh, how you place violence and sex and write it on the page. Yeah, I do. I never try to. I never do it gratuitously. I'm very Hitchcockian in that I leave most of that stuff to the reader's imagination. I'm not gonna. I've gotten. I've gotten too graphic in some novels, and I've pulled back over the years. One because I don't particularly care for that, and two, um, I have to trust my readers. They're going to be able to figure that out and imagine it to the level that I need them to, so they can follow along in the story. Um, I've certainly gotten uh, more sensitive to issues of, you know, certain elements of society, marginalized communities, people of color, cultural appropriate, misappropriation and all that, um, which that is something that we all should be more sensitive about and understand. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, people evolve and change over time, and standards have to as well. People talk about, well, you know, we got all this new crap we have to learn, pronouns and stuff like that, and it's like, okay, but see, that's because you've been in charge of society forever, and you've set those rules, but now we have, you know, people who have, you know, come to light that were afraid to come out as themselves for a long period of time, and now just want a level of respect that all of us are entitled to, and now you say, well, it's just so different. It's, it's different because the world that was created before was created for, you know, a certain element of society, um, and it was not all that inclusive. So I don't, you know, I look at it just a very different way. I, I want to be inclusive. I want lots of people to read lots of different books. I want to have readers and writers out there who have voices across the spectrum representing all communities because guess what? That always ends with a good result. You know, we, we live, you know, 2023, here we are again talking about book banning and book burning and censorship and what people can read and can't read. And I'm like, here we go again, you know. It, even the history showed us every time we do this, you know, the end is an apocalypse. Well, I, David, I took your master class. Thank you very much. Uh, shameless plug for you. And in one of the sections, in the, you talked about this, and you said about age of your characters. Is is that what you're saying? Is that, you know, you developed as a writer, the world society has developed as you've been developing as a writer, so make your books and the stories and the characters and the issues develop also in those time frames? Yeah, because I think that that means that you'll always sort of remain relevant. Um, and as the world changes, you know, you have to change too. Uh, because what I write, I'm writing about is the world. I'm not writing about the world 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, except in certain respects, depending on what the book is. I'm trying to write about life today that people can relate to and understand and see out there for themselves. You know, they can, they can walk up the pages of my book and go outside and see, well, it's, yeah, it's kind of like the world I just was reading about in this book, not from 1980, but from, you know, 2023. So as, as writers, and that's what I do. I, you know, I'm writing about the world as I see it, you know, in real time. 
And, you know, the research that I do, I'm doing it now. I'm talking to people who are alive now and are seeing the world a certain way and doing a certain job a certain way that they might not have done it that way 20 years ago or 10 years ago. So writers have to keep up with the times, too, unless they're writing historical fiction. And also, you know, issues change. People change. Um, and new segments come up. And you have to – those things all interest me because these are new, fresh. And that's what writers – want to maintain that freshness, well, take on new challenges, take on things as, as society evolves. Look at it this way. That's just more material for new, for new books. Well, when you portray law enforcement in your books, the, the FBI and other agencies, how do you feel about how they're portrayed nowadays, and what, what do you do to sort of get across your own point of view about those things? Yeah, so I, what I, I try to do is it's like everything else, every other segment of society, there's good and there's bad. Yeah, you know, not every person is a good person. Uh, not every FBI agent or police officer is a good person, and certainly not every one of them is a bad person. We're, we're all human beings, and we're all susceptible to certain things. So what I try to do is, you know, in my books, I have FBI agents who are ramrod straight, and they take on cases, and they do the right thing and solve them. And in other books, I have some uh, people who work in law enforcement or the government who are corrupt and uh, are, you know, have been bribed or are doing bad things for their own self-interest. Um, and because why do I do that? Because that's, that reflects reality. Um, and I've always felt like if you have someone in a position of authority, um, and you think of them as, you know, sort of being a good person, but they can be influenced by, um, elements of self-interest. In my very first novel, Absolute Power, the president, you know, was a bad guy. He attacked a woman and Secret Service had to save his life from her, even though he didn't deserve it. Um, and they killed her. And so in murdering her, they were doing their job. If that's not the ultimate moral dilemma, I'm not sure what it is. So you have two, you know, two agents who are really good guys, always wanted to do the right thing, and because of someone else's actions, they had to do something that was morally wrong, even if it was part of their job. And the consequences for that, for both of them, were severe. Um, it changed who they were. You know, it was a start of a downward spiral. I just want to show that, you know, life can throw you shit sometimes. Um, and some of us were able to get through it, and some of us are not. And it changed, but it changes all of us to a certain level. So for me, in writing about it, the edges of that change—that's what fascinates me. You know, putting human beings under stress and seeing what they're going to do. So how has it changed you then? Like each each book and process you go through, and you you get things out of the book, and you kind of battle and finally get it get published. Um, how is it changing you? I feel like every book is an opportunity for me to dig deeper and deeper into humankind. Um, so I'm still fascinated by plots and twists and turns and red herrings and all the stuff that makes a book fun to read. Um, but I feel like I'm getting more and more into, I want to keep deep diving into the characters um, and to see what motivates them. I ask extraordinary things of my characters in my novels. I mean, there are mysteries and thrillers and, you know, Crazy things are happening, and you know there's violence and misdeeds, and people are running around, and it's just a lot going on. So I've always thought that if I'm asking extreme actions by people, I have to give them extreme motivations to do that. And the only way to really understand that is to dig down into the human psyche and see what makes people tick and what what will drive a good person to do something bad. For me, that's just really fascinating. People are endlessly fascinated by it. you know you'll read. People will be reading books about serial killers and Ted Bundy and, and, and the likes of that forever. Why? Because they're fascinated by the fact that a human being, just like them, could do something so awful. 
And people like that say scare. You know, it's like a little kid looking under the bed for the boogeyman. Um, you never want to meet Ted Bundy in real life, but you want to read about him because you're fascinated by this guy who's a human being but he's a monster. Uh, it's that safe, scare sort of element. But for me, it's like I need to dig down into the human mind to see what makes people do what they do. Uh, in particular, what makes, you know, seemingly good people do bad things. The Ted Bundys of the world, you can explain that away scientifically. They're missing a couple of chromosomes. Um, but for ordinary people who are driven to do bad things, that's just fascinating for me. How do you look at villains when you're writing them? They, they obviously have to be real people, and villains in real life don't think of themselves as villains. So how do you approach that? Yeah, I, what I want to what I want to try to do when I'm, I'm dealing with sort of the bad elements in my novels, um, I want to flesh them out as best I can, but not completely fully, because I'm going to leave a little bit in reserve as the action in the book goes on, so that I can have some more reveals further on. Yeah, I'm always like, turn the tap on, turn the tap off. I don't want to give you a gush or everything all at once. One, because it reveals too much. People don't really need that information at that, at that point in the book. And it leaves something in reserve for them to be, to find out and discover along the way, which is always fascinating for, for people, readers of all, of all types. Um, but I want to, I want to put the character squarely in the circumstance of the moment. Um, so again, if someone is, is doing something out of character, uh, that we would consider morally wrong, I need to find some justification why they would do that. Is it financial? Is it personal? Um, some motivation for them to be able to do it. Otherwise, I'm going to hit a plausibility wall. and People are going to read that and go, ah, I just don't see that. You know, I wouldn't do that. Just given that motivation, I would have done X, Y, Z, not that. You have to understand the psychology of how the readers are going to anticipate that movement and make sure that you're on really, really firm ground in directing a character to do something bad. Um, and I, I, for me, less is more. And I've gotten to the point in my career where if I, if, if years ago I, it took a hundred words for me to, to do something in a novel, I aim to do it in 10 now, um, because it's going to be more powerful. Uh, words have this dilutive effect, um, that is not always good when you're trying to make a firm point and come across in a very forceful way. I, I always give the example of Abraham Lincoln. Um, when he was president, he tried to write a condolence letter every mother who lost a son in the Civil War. Couldn't write them all, but he tried. The most famous one he wrote, he wrote to a woman who'd lost all five of her sons. And he began the letter by saying, I apologize for the length of this letter. If I'd had more time to write it, it would have been far shorter. And what he meant by that was that he would have given far more attention and care to the creation of the letter. You know, the greatest American political speech of all time is the Gettysburg Address. It's 363 words long. It took Lincoln two and a half minutes to say it at Gettysburg. Um, and But every word had earned the right to be in that speech. Um, and that's sort of the litmus test for me. You know, every word, whether I'm trying to describe a scene or a character or a motivation or a plot point, has to earn the right to be there. Otherwise, it's not going to be there. Sort of like Trump's speech on COVID. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We, we, you can't help himself, David. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, let's let me uh, say you, you've brought up the theme and the and, and the Lincoln and the characters and the plausibility. If I was new into your book world, is there a book that you would have written or you say I've gotten as close as I can right now to to fulfilling that word smithing that you're looking for the ideology, the theme, yeah, the character. Yeah, I would, start? I would say probably two two books I would point out. They're the first books in two of my series. 
one where I really felt like I hit my stride um, was The Innocent. It was the first uh, book in the Will Roby series. Um, and the second one would be the first book in the um, Memory Man series with Amos Decker, which was entitled Memory Man. Um, those two books, I, sometimes I go back to those to see, you know, how I did it there. Um, because I felt uh, the brevity, the intensity, the focus. Uh, I felt like I was sitting on all cylinders and I was really the master and commander of the fleet that day, that it was all working out for me. And um, sometimes I go back and peruse those, those two books to make sure that, you know, I adhere to what I tried to achieve in those two novels. Um, and there's, not, there's nothing perfect, perfect about any of it. You know, we're, we're just apprentices of this craft. Nobody is a master of it. But they, those two novels really fulfilled what I wanted to come across as a storyteller, um, that I wanted to be tight and lean and taut and forceful and compelling. Uh, in the storytelling. I wanted people to feel everything that was happening with the characters in that novel. I wanted the, the action to be relentless. Um, I wanted the resolution to be as perfect as it could possibly be. And I wanted people to really care at the end about what had happened or had not happened to certain people in that novel, uh, as if they had known them as their own flesh and blood. Well, let's talk about the new book, Simply Lies. Um, what can you tell us about that book? So I, I sort of imagine this book is... Uh, a little bit of how we all live our lives now. Um, it starts out with two women, uh, Mickey Gibson, she's a single mom, got two little kids, she was a detective, her husband ran out of her, and so she had to move, and now she works for this online um, investigation agency, basically goes out to rich people to try to, you know, cheat and don't pay taxes, I have money and all that stuff. Um, and she is contacted by this woman over the phone initially, and then she's sent out to this mansion. Uh, she thinks to do inventory of the personal possessions there, and she finds a dead body. Uh, and that starts it. But really, I guess the, the metaphorical presence of this book is that it represents our world today, is that a, a lot of what happens in the first half of this book happens not face-to-face but online, um, where people can be chameleons to the nth degree. You can be whoever you want, and you can be multiple people, you know, in the course of a single day. Um, and nobody will ever know who you really are. The walls will never come down, and you can do anything without consequence. That, you know, for me is, you know, that's a lot of what we experience today. You know, it's it talk, don't, you know, I, I have a whole other, you know, opinion on AI and ChatGPT and all the other stuff. Um, but I'm just talking about humanity is sort of has receded behind these walls of technology um, such that identity almost becomes valueless. Well, you can't. Um miss when you have a story about the current technology that we're all living in. It goes back to your idea of living in a world that's real and plausible and today. I, would, I want to ask one other question. Yeah. Because again, I listened to your the last segment of your um, master class, the uh, Follow the Words. I do it every once in a while. And I, I, wanna, I hope you don't mind sort of saying the ideals and thoughts you had towards people who are new writers and what it takes to get to be, try to be, something beyond what they are right now is. Yeah, I mean, right, words are the most powerful tools we have as human beings. They convey our thoughts and ideas and opinions. And they can be forceful. They can persuade other people uh, to do things or not do things. So they really are the, the greatest uh, arrows that we have in our quiver. Um, and so it's, it's a responsibility um, because it is a very powerful weapon, if you will, 
um, that can uh, change the world in many ways. So for me, I, I always ask people, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about being a writer, ask yourself this one, uh, one word question, why? You know, why do you want to be a writer? Um, and uh, it's, not, it's not a frivolous query. It's a very serious one. If the answer is, well, I hate my day job, and I think maybe I could write something and maybe sell the film rights, <laughs> and then I could quit my job and then go off and have fun, not really the answer you want. It's a, very, it's a self-evaluation of yourself, what motivates you to want to do what you do. And for me, I asked myself that question, you know, many years ago. And I came to the resolution that um, I can't live without words. You know, I can't live without playing around with words every day of my life uh, and creating things that didn't exist before I thought of them, because that's what really rocks my world. Um, that's what motivates me to get up every day, um, this creating these fictional worlds. Um, and so that's why the answer, because, look, it is a really tough profession. It is based on total subjectivity of a particular person at any point in time, meaning you write something, you send it out to a complete stranger, and you're waiting, you know, in a frenzy to see what they're going to think of it, and they're either going to like it, not really be moved by it, they're going to trash it, um, and there you go. Those are, those are sort of the three options. Now, if you've gotten into writing for the right reasons, because it's something you can't live without, when you get rejected, they're not going to be, uh, you know, fatal wounds to you. You know, your body armor is going to be so hard that it's going to hurt for a day and then you're going to forget about it and you keep moving on because the whole idea is to get through the gauntlet. You have to get through. There is a gauntlet that you have to get through. And if you're in writing for the wrong reasons, you are never going to survive that gauntlet. The first rejection, the second rejection, you're dead and you're going to go off and do something else for the rest of your life. Uh, but those who are in it for the right reasons, they will get through the gauntlet. So I tell people, I said, people who are meant to be writers are actually going to be a, turn out to be writers and to make a living doing it because they have the wherewithal to get through that gauntlet. Um, and that's one we've all had to pass through. So I, I just I just tell people, please make sure that your desire to do with the words uh, is a true and genuine thought. Because if not, you're going to be wasting a lot of time. Well, you talk a lot about the power of words, and I think it's an important point to bring up that you also have done a lot to promote literacy um, with your program. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I will. Um, literacy, um, the ability to read and the ability to think are the same verb in my mind. You can't do one without the other, particularly in an information age that we live in now. And I've always thought that literacy, um, the strength of, one, of, one, of, a, of a population's literacy will equate almost exactly to the strengths of one's democracy and freedom. So if you're weak in literacy, your democracy is weak and un ultimately unsustainable, uh, particularly, again, in an information society where we have disinformation coming at us in terabytes 24-7. So our, you know, our job at the Wishy Well Foundation, our mission is simple to eradicate illiteracy in the United States. We want people to achieve their potential. Uh, and the only way to do that is to be able to read and think at a very high level. Cognitive processes are absolutely critical to getting ahead these days. I don't care what occupation you have. You have to have high reading skills. And you also have to have reading skills to be a citizen of the democracy. If you don't have that, we're all going to suffer because of it, because you're going to go to the voting booth and make very poor choices. Um, so for me, it is it is the lifeblood of a democracy. And it will determine whether, you know, as, a, as Benjamin Franklin said, you know, 250 years ago, 
Um, when he came out of um, writing the, uh, helping to write uh, the Constitution, a lady in Philadelphia asked him, so what do we have? And he said, she said, do we have a monarchy or, or a republic? And Franklin said, we have a republic, if we can keep it. So to you, what makes a good book? If, I, if it captures my attention and interest uh, within the first 20 or 30 pages, but more than that, if I am intrigued and impressed by the storytelling prowess um, and a calm assuredness of the writer, then I'm going to be in for the long haul. And that's done in multiple ways. One, if there's a surprise or one that I didn't see coming, I'm going to sit a little bit straighter. If the, the word selections are unique and original and put together in a way that seems fresh, and if there's at least one character uh, that I've become attached to early on, um, if those three things happen, I'm going to be in it for the long haul, barring something completely un unforeseen. And I don't mean to make books, you know, like a TikTok competition. You know, God forbid that. Uh, although these days when I sit down, I'm like, okay, I live in the TikTok world, so I have approximately 13 words to capture their attention or I'm still going to move on to something else, right? Um, but those are the elements that I look for. I want to look to make sure that I'm in the hand of someone who is assured and confident in their ability to spin a tale. And if they are, you can usually tell pretty early on. So what's next for you? Um, have you got like 10 other books sitting in the in the wings? I've got, well, I'm working on the sequel to The 620 Man right now. Um, that'll be out in the fall of this year. And then next year, I, when I you were talking about COVID. I, during COVID, although I started writing these books, these two books like 10 or 12 years ago, one is a courtroom drama set in 1968 in Virginia um, that will be out in the spring of next year. Um, 1968 was obviously a very tumultuous year. And I have to tell you, I started writing that book about 12 years ago, the first pure courtroom drama that I have ever written, even though I was a lawyer. And I set it aside about six years ago because I didn't think it was irrelevant anymore. Um, and then I picked it back up uh, about six years ago. And I was reading parts of it, and I came to realize that if I didn't tell you it was set in 1968, some of the scenes that I've written you think were contemporary. So I went and finished it. Um, and that will be out in the spring of next year. And it's one that I'm – It's a lot of it is, you know, autobiographical. I mean, it's not about me, but it's about the world that I grew up uh, – when I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, in a heavily racist, heavily segregated society. You know, I walk, when I went to college, I walked past those statues in Monument Avenue every day of my life. Um, and I grew up with people who thought that the world of the 1950s was perfectly fine and the way the world should be organized to this day. And so for me, it was, it's a very important book because it's sort of a, it's both a look back and a look forward for me. Um, and I think that sometimes that sort of contemplation is important. Yeah, yeah. So now, um, are you a big social media guy then? Are you, you on TikTok dancing and you have all those things? Like, how do people find you? Yeah, they, I, I have, I'm on all those things because t people tell me for whatever reason I can't live without them. <laughs> so I am on, you know, Facebook, davidbaldacci.com, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I don't spend, I hardly spend any, I don't go on Facebook. I don't go on Instagram. Sometimes I go on Twitter just to look at some news feeds and do a couple of tweets, like two tweets a year. Um, other than that, the people who are on there do a lot of it for me because that's what they do and it's not what I do. Well, we'll have that up on our website so that people can find you. And, and Website's a good one, davidbaldacci.com. You'll learn a lot about, you know, my book, but you'll also learn some about my personal philosophies, about the Wishy Will Foundation, and things that are important and things that I, I believe other people should think are important, too. 
Yeah, you know, when you mention sequels, when you're writing the sequels of this book, do, do you have some sort of, like, as they call a Bible or some sort of a um, a way of keeping track of your characters? Yeah, I, it, it is, particularly when you've had multiple. Like, I've had, you know, The Campbell Club, I wrote uh, five books, Memory Man's seven books so far and counting. Um, so it's just, it's really, it's due diligence. I look at it that way, that I want to make sure things are consistent. It's almost like having a scripty on a film set where, you know, his or her job is to make sure that, you know, the scenes are consistent, the costuming, you know, wardrobe, everything else is right, and the the settings are where they're supposed to be. Sometimes you'll shoot, you know, the one scene in strips, you know, a third, a third, and a third, and you have to make sure, even though on different days, everything looks the same. So I go back and consult those old books, you know, and I go through to make sure that, okay, I said this about this character, so I can't say this about the character now. Um, and you just want to be consistent. So I just I look at that as due diligence and making sure that I'm in command of the material because it's it's just kind of a it's a turnoff for a reader if if a, a writer makes a mistake on something like that. Um, it's almost like you know they didn't care enough. I mean, some of the I, I'm, I'm not saying that's you know terrible. I, you look at like I grew up reading Sherlock Holmes. It's awesome series. Um, Conan Doyle really didn't like Holmes. He wanted to write more serious books. And so he was very careless, you know, with the details. But it was fun careless. I got that part, you know, because he was like, okay, this is Sherlock Holmes. Just, I'm not going to kill myself making sure everything's perfectly correct. I spend that on my other types of books. But for the books that I write, I just feel it's really important to make sure you get it as right as possible. Doyle didn't even get Watson's name right. right? Was it John or a James? That's right. So. <laughs> what did that bullet really hit him? Was it the shoulder? Was it the leg? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But I, mean, I want to ask one question because you're a wordsmith and you take words seriously. You've said it many times. Is what do you think about hearing your words being spoken on audiobooks? How does it make you feel? I I love that part of it because I it gets a whole new performance level um, to the story that I couldn't bring to bear. And I I have a lot of input in, in selecting the readers who are going to perform the audiobooks and. I take a lot of care with that because I understand that's going to be a totally different experience for the reader. So I've gotten to the point where I listen to all the audiobooks. Obviously, I know what's going to happen, but, you know, a, a really good reader can emote. They can put, you know, emotion into a, a line. They can emphasize certain words, make them louder, softer, and just bring a, a level of intensity, humanistic intensity, uh, to the novel, just a flat word on a, on a, on a printed page. I, I couldn't rise to that to that level. Um, so I love listening to the audiobooks, and that's why I spend so much time making sure that the readers, like not really readers, performers, are as good as they possibly can be are, are and are best, you know, for the certain material they want them to read. Um, so I love it. You know, I, look, I, I admit I've sat in my garage with the car running, even though now I don't have to have the car running. It's on my phone. But in the old days, when you had CDs and the car were running, I listened to the stuff because I was just so fascinated by it. Well, it's good for old people, too. Like me, that can't see, you know. <laughs> we get into that. So, so listen. So, what you've sold? Uh, what it says: 150 million copies worldwide in 80 countries, 45 languages. So, tell us, what's the secret? How do we get there? <laughs> you get there by never thinking for one instant that you were going to achieve any of that. Um, because if you did, I think you'd be so paralyzed you wouldn't be able to write a word. I, have, I, I tell people that if you approach it correctly and you, you actually want to write because you're thrilled with the joy of spending time with words and coming up with stories, if you just 
focus on the story and nothing else. Forget about the contracts, about the publishers, about the agents, about readers, about everything. If you just focus on the fact that, you know, you're a little kid again with a piece of paper and a pencil and you're sitting down and creating something that didn't exist before you thought of it, that really, that simple sort of way to approach the craft is incredibly powerful because it sets you, it sets you on an island where you can get your work done. Uh, it gives you this level of distance from all the other stuff. You know, you don't worry about the industry you're creating or the jobs you're creating for people or the number of copies you're going to sell because that's all, that's great, but it has nothing to do with actually telling the story. So everything, ever all the extraneous stuff, cut it away and make it simple, like a three-ingredient meal, and you'll come to understand that simplicity will allow you to write really incredibly complex stuff and do it real, really, really well. So avoid all the noise and eat macaroni and cheese. <laughs> yeah. You've got to put a little basil on it. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. See, three ingredients. Yes. Well, we really appreciate you being here. It's been a great interview, and uh, what can we say? It's been a thrill. Um, so, of course, our guest has been the uh, great author, Mr. David Beldalci. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.